0: you remember how hard it was as a child to wait for Christmas? That was just so hard. All the Christmas decorations went up and the Christmas tree went up. And then presents started appearing under the tree. And as a kid, I just could not wait for Christmas morning. I would beg my parents, can't we open just one? Just one present? And it was always the same answer. No. What about just one on Christmas Eve? No. Once in a while, when I was little, I would actually go looking for Christmas presents around the house. I would check in a closet, see if there's something there, or pull down the attic stairs and climb up into the cold attic. I remember doing that when we lived in Albany, Georgia, in, uh, in a little house that had an attic uh, that came out of the garage. And so you would climb up into the attic. And I peeked up in there and I saw a Christmas present that was wrapped And so I looked at it and started handling it, and it was this square box. And I thought, what could this be? And I shook it. And then I noticed that it was not a fully formed box. There was a part of it that had sides to it, but then the front of it seemed open, and I could feel whatever was on the inside of that. And so as I poked around, I may have accidentally put a hole in the wrapping. Accidentally, maybe. Maybe. Uh, put a hole in the wrapping and I discovered it was a world globe that I had asked my parents for and then I panicked thinking, oh no, I have torn the wrapping and it's right on the front and they're going to see it. And I prayed for the rest of the Christmas season that they would assume they did it, you know, that they somehow accidentally messed up the wrapping when they put it up in the attic or when they took it down. But waiting can be hard and maybe like our home, you now have a, a Christmas countdown calendar that tells you how many days there are left uh, until Christmas. And if you're like our home, it's the wife or the mom that has to change that because the rest of us forget. You know, we forget to change it, but she changes it every day so that we can count down the days till Christmas. But waiting can sometimes be difficult. And that's kind of what make that, made that first Christmas morning so exciting, so special. You see, I think sometimes we forget that the Jewish people who had been promised a Messiah, a Savior, who would not only bless and redeem them, but who would bless the world, that they had been waiting for hundreds of years for that promise of God to be fulfilled. And so that first Christmas morning was the culmination of centuries of waiting In fact, by the time that first Christmas morning arrived, it had been 2,000 years since God had made His promise to a man named Abraham that through him, God would bless the world with a Savior, with the Messiah. And yet, sadly, many of the Jewish people had lost hope by that point. They had given up because waiting is hard. Many millions of Jewish people, were born, and from the moment they were born, were taught that God has promised to send his Messiah, his anointed king, who will rule over us and rule over the world in righteousness. And unlike all the other kings of this world who use their people, this king will serve his people. This king will give his life. For his people. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And he's going to make all the wrong right in the world. And for centuries they had been taught that. But millions were born hearing those promises. Lived their lives. And died. Without ever seeing the fulfillment of that promise. And many of them gave up. Many of them turned away from God. Many of them lost their hope in God. They perhaps were still outwardly religious. But deep down, they were just going through the motions. They didn't believe anymore. For many of them, they turned away from serving the one true living God to serving idols, false gods. Many of them compromised their morals and their convictions because that God that they had been promised would come and send a Messiah hadn't done much for them lately. And living for Him doesn't seem to be paying off in the immediate here and now. And so they gave up and they gave in. And maybe that's where the Christmas story intersects with your story. Because maybe you're waiting as well for God to show up. And for God to keep his promise to you. As Christians, we recognize that the first Christmas was God's fulfillment of that promise to send His Messiah. And He sent Jesus, His Son, Emmanuel, God with us. But we are still waiting as God's people. Now we're waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of that promise where Jesus said, I will come back one day. And the ultimate promise of Revelation chapter 21 where Jesus promises us, That there's going to come a day that he will usher in for this world where there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a whole new universe no longer tainted by the brokenness of sin. And he says on that day there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow. There will be no more death. All those things that sin brought into our world will be gone. And he promised he's going to make all things new. But we're waiting again. And it's hard to wait. Every time you stand by the bedside of a loved one in a hospital and you hold their hand as they breathe their last, you say, Lord, how long? Whenever your marriage is falling apart and you've tried everything you know to do to keep it together, and it seems like every prayer you've asked for God to heal your marriage has just gone unheard. You ask, God, how long must I wait? Whenever you've longed for a child, and yet the doctors have said you're not going to be able to have a child. You wonder how long. Whenever you wake up in the morning and you turn on the news and you hear about a shooting on a Navy base in Hawaii or an Air Force base in Pensacola, and you see evil personified, you say, God, how long? Are we going to have to wait? I'm tired of living in a broken body with broken relationships in a broken world. And you've promised one day that you're going to make all things right. How long do we have to wait? God, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. How long do we have to wait? And I I think if we're honest, there are some people maybe even in this room today who are this close to giving up. You're thinking, is this all just a myth that I medicate myself with to make me feel better, but it's not really true? Is, is this book we call the Bible really God's Word, or am I, am I fooling myself that I'm believing stuff that's just superstition? And you're this close to giving up because God hasn't come through for you lately. And you're just wondering, am I wasting my time? What good is it living for God? What is it getting me? Maybe I should just give up and go with the world. That's why some of our children start questioning their faith and they give up. That's why when some of you go to college and you hear your, your, your professors say, that book you call the Bible is just myth and error and legend. And it's been changed over the centuries, which by the way is not true. But that's what they tell you and you don't know how to argue back. You give up. And you lose your faith. Whereas why when we are tired of waiting for our prayers to be answered, it's just easier to give up than to live with unmet longings. And if that's where you are today, I'm so glad you're here because I want you to know you're not the only one to sometimes struggle with saying, God, it's hard to hold on to hope when I'm hurting. It's hard to hold on to hope when I don't understand because I can promise you if you feel that way, there are other people in this room who feel that way. And there's even someone on this stage who has felt that way in his life before as well. But that's where the Christmas story intersects with your story. Because just as we can learn from the first Christmas, the first coming of Jesus, that God is faithful to keep his promises, we too who are now waiting for the second promise to be fulfilled can hold on to our hope no matter what. Because we're going to see today from the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 27 that your faith in God is not futile because God is always faithful. He may not show his faithfulness the way you think he should or when you think he should, but ultimately we'll look back one day and we'll see that our God was faithful to keep his promise. Luke is an historian and a physician and he is Writing an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And he's writing this in such a way that later scholars and skeptics can go back and check him out. He says, I'm going to give you a factual, historical account of the life of Jesus, and I want you to be able to check me out look at the details, investigate. So I'm going to name names. I'm going to name places. I'm going to give dates and events so that you can know this is not a fairy tale. What happened in Jesus coming into the world that first Christmas in his whole life was not made up by people sitting in a room somewhere. These things actually happened in real time, in a real place with real people. And I'm going to write you a history Lesson. So that's what we call the Gospel of Luke. It's his history, his biography of the life of Jesus. And he introduces the characters of Christmas to us like this in Luke chapter 1 verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, that's the same Herod who ordered for all the kids to be killed in Bethlehem. All those baby boys trying to stamp out the birth of the Messiah, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So he introduces us, first of all, to Zechariah and Elizabeth, this husband and wife from a family of priests on both sides, on Zechariah's side, a lineage of Jewish priests and On Elizabeth's side, a lineage of Jewish priests. Priests were the servants of God who represented the people of Israel to God and who represented God to the people through their priestly duties. This is a good family. This is an upstanding family. This is a family with a bunch of preacher kids in it all the way back. Granddaddy and granddaddy's granddaddy. And they could trace their lineage back hundreds of years to a priestly line of Aaron and Abijah. Look at verse six. These are good people. It says, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, now think about that. They're righteous before God. This is not just what other people said about them. This was God's opinion of them. These are righteous people. God would look at these two people and say, now they're doing it right. They're living life right. They're doing what I want them to do. And they're walking, they're conducting themselves blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes. All the commandments of God in the Old Testament and the statutes that regulated righteous life in Uh, the Jewish culture they were living by. These are people who are committed. They're doing the right thing. And that's an astounding thing to me. When you realize that hundreds of years have gone by and God has yet to fulfill His promises of a Messiah by the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth. As we discussed last week, from the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, to the beginning of the New Testament, your book of Matthew, there were 400 years of silence where God did not send a prophet to Israel. He did not preach a sermon to Israel. He didn't perform a miracle for Israel. He didn't give them a pep rally to keep them encouraged. It was 400 years of silence. And on top of that, there were hundreds of other years prior to that. When God had initially given his promise, and the promise has yet to be fulfilled. By the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, 2,000 years have gone by since God promised Abraham that through his descendants, the whole world would be blessed. And yet here we have this couple living blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. And you might want to ask them, hey, how's that working out for you? How's it working out for you living for God? Has God done anything for you lately? Verse 7. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. They had no child. Elizabeth could not give Zechariah a child. In that culture, it was a stigma to be barren. Rightly so. Uh, The scriptures teach that children are a blessing from the Lord. And so people inferred from that the opposite. They inferred that if you did not have a child, God must be punishing you for something you've done wrong in your life. By the way, that is still a misconception, no pun intended there. That is still an error that people believe. I've had grieving couples say, is it something we've done? Is it it the fact that I didn't always live for God like I should have in my past, that he is punishing me? And the answer is no. We see in Elizabeth's life, she's a righteous woman. She's living for God and I'm sure as they got married in their young adult life, that they had all of these dreams of the family that they would start. But for year after year and decade after decade, they have now grown old together without a child. And every day they come home to that room that they had dreamed one day would be the nursery. And it's just a room. And you couldn't blame Zechariah and Elizabeth if they had given up on God. God not only hasn't kept his promises to the nation, he hasn't even heard our prayers for a child. In fact, 2,000 years earlier, God had said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, I will make of you a great nation. By the way, God fulfilled that promise. How many of you have ever heard the nation Israel? Anybody here ever heard that? It's kind of in the news every once in a while. So God kept that promise. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Anybody here ever heard of a guy named Abraham? Anybody besides me? Okay, so God kept that promise so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. God said, and through your descendant, one day I'm going to send a Savior, not just for you, Abraham, not just for your descendants, the Jewish people, but a Savior for the whole world. And by the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, 2,000 years have gone by, and that promise has not been fully kept. And yet they're still living blamelessly. And they're still obeying the Old Testament scriptures. And they're still serving God at the temple. And not only has God not blessed like they thought he would, think about the history of Israel. By the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Israel's changed hands on the world stage about 25 times. Different nations, different people groups, different armies have come in and conquered and taken control of them. You've got the Babylonians, and then you've got the Persians, and then you've got the Greeks. And by the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, now the Romans have conquered Israel and control the Holy Land. In fact, in 63 B.C., when Zechariah's father was young and a priest in Israel... A Roman general, Pompey the Great, besieges the city, conquers the city of Jerusalem, marches through the city all the way up to the temple mount of Israel. He goes into the temple of the Jewish God. He goes into that holy place. And then he pulls back the curtains and walks into the Holy of Holies... ...where the Ark of the Covenant is, where only the high priest was allowed to enter. And even he could only go once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he desecrated the holiest place of the Jewish people on planet Earth. The place where God was supposed to uniquely manifest his power and his presence... And Pompey looks around and he doesn't see an idol, and he doesn't see an image, and he thinks, "What a bunch of crazy backwater people that worship a God they can't even see." And he turns around and he walks out, and he tells the Jewish people, "You can keep your temple. Cleanse it, keep doing what you're doing. But can't you imagine as Zechariah's dad came home that day, broken. And you will never believe what happened today. Not only have we been humiliated by that Roman general, our God has been humiliated. He walked into the holiest of holies and God didn't do anything. And he walked away saying, our God Jupiter is better than their God Yahweh. And you can't blame Zechariah and Elizabeth if they had just given up why are we doing this? Why are we wasting our time? Where is God in all of this? But you know what they did? They kept walking in the statutes and the commandments of God. They kept going back to the scriptures. They kept going back to the promises. And they just held on to those promises. That God's going to keep his promise. We don't know when. We don't know how. We may not even live to see the day. But we believe. One of the promises they believed was when God renewed His promise in about 750 B.C. to a prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder It hasn't happened yet, Isaiah says. But God is always faithful to keep his promise. And that's all Zechariah and Elizabeth had to hold on to. They couldn't see God at work in their personal lives. They couldn't understand how God was at work on the stage of world history. All they could do was just hang on to the promise that one day that king is coming. Look at verse 8 back in Luke chapter 1. It says, now while he, this is Zechariah, now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, there were were 24 divisions, about 18,000 priests. You thought our staff of eight was big. 18,000. He says in verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he, Zechariah, was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense, Because there were so many priests, they would would cast lots to see whose number would be called to get to burn incense in the holy place. Those those fragrant wafts of smoke going up symbolized the prayers of the people going up. And if you were chosen, this was such an awesome responsibility, it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime privilege. Once you've done this, you could never do it again as long as you lived. And this was Zechariah's day, to go in and burn incense, representing the prayers of the people. Verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, don't just run past this appearance of an angel. We're so familiar with the Christmas story, we go, oh, great, another angel. Listen, this is a rare thing for angels Uh, servants created by God to, to serve him, to appear to human beings. But this time, Zechariah gets an audience with an angel. Verse 12, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. By the way, that is a typical angel response whenever they encounter people. You know why they have to say, don't be afraid? Because human beings are afraid when the, an angel appears to them. If a friend of yours says, oh, I saw an angel. It was so sweet and so comforting. They've not seen an angel. If your friend says, you're not going to believe what happened. Freaked me out. I started confessing. sin. I'm so sorry, God. I'll never read comic books again. I don't know. I will never do that again in traffic and the angel had to say, "No, no, no, no! Calm down. I'm not here to kill you. I'm not here to judge you. God sent me with some good news for you." Zechariah is freaking out. He is deathly afraid because he's in the in the presence of this angel. Do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. What prayer? Some say, well, just the priestly prayer that he just offered on behalf of Israel. And I think that is certainly true because a part of the priestly prayer offered was, Oh God, be merciful to your people. And God says, I've heard that prayer. And I'm about to show mercy to my people in a way that will bless them and bless the world. But I think it was also that unspoken prayer that has been on the heart of Zechariah and Elizabeth all their marriage, a prayer for a child. Your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John, a.k.a. John the Baptist. The next prophet that God was going to send to Israel To proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And to call people to prepare to receive their Messiah. That's who this child is going to be. Verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. Zechariah and Elizabeth. It won't be just the two of you rejoicing whenever he is born. All of Israel is going to rejoice. Because it shows them God's not forgotten about us. God hasn't abandoned his people God is at work in our history. He's at work in our world. Verse 15, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John the Baptist's job was so serious to prepare the way for the Messiah. There was no time for him to be under the influence of anyone or anything other than the Spirit of God. And even from his mother's womb, he was going to be filled with the Spirit of God, anointed by God to do the work that God had for him. By the way, one of the reasons that I believe in the sanctity of the unborn human life is because you see here, John was a human being. And even John had the capacity to be filled with God's Spirit. He had a plan for John, and he had a purpose for John even before he was born. Verse 16 And he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Why would he have to turn the people of Israel to to God? Because they had lost hope. Because they had turned away from God. Because they had given up on God ever keeping his promises. Verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah's going, "Uh, time out. How do I know this is true? I'm an old man. And evidently, Zechariah was a very diplomatic man, because he says, I'm an old man, and my wife, well, she's advanced (laughs) in years. I'm not going to call her an old woman, Was a smart husband, but let's just say she's advanced in years. We're past the childbearing years. What are you talking about, angel? <laughs> in verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. It's like the angel went, Duh! <laughs> I'm an angel. And I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Gabriel says, I'm not here of my own account. This is not my message. Who do you think created me? Who do you think sent me on this mission? This is directly from God to you. Why are you questioning God's message to you? In fact, the angel, uh, verse 20, the angel continues, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak. Until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Okay, you don't believe the word of God and you're questioning the word of God. So I'm going to make you be silent now until that baby is born and there's no more arguing with God that he can keep his promises. And so he zips his lip. And Gabriel says to Zechariah that this will happen at the appointed time. You say, wait a minute, angel. You mean, you mean the birth of John the Baptist has been on God's calendar? This is an appointment that God penciled in a long time ago? God's got this under control. And just because you don't know God's calendar and you don't know God's plan and just because you don't know God's timing doesn't mean God doesn't keep his promise. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. I mean, can you imagine? He probably looked like a ghost when he walked out of there. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. He couldn't speak, so he's trying to make these signs about what just happened to him. I don't know what signs he was making like But but some, yeah, maybe maybe this is the first time a charades. Let's see. So two words, first syllable, first word. I don't know what was going on, but he's trying to communicate to them what took him so long and why he can't speak. Continues, verse 23. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. When Elizabeth realizes she's pregnant and that the promise of Gabriel the angel from God to her husband has come true, she hid herself for five months, not in shame, but she wanted to dedicate herself for five months in praising God and thanking him for the favor that he has shown to her and also to have a revealing party so that the next time her family and friends saw her, they would no longer scorn her and they could not deny that she was going to have a baby. And only God could get the glory for what had happened to her. God was writing Elizabeth and Zechariah into the Christmas story into the story of redemption in a way that they could never understand. Read what happened next, because really, they're just a small part of a bigger story. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Zechariah and Elizabeth were being brought into, and they had always been a part of the plan of God, even if they didn't understand it. And Zechariah and Elizabeth's dilemma is our dilemma as well. What do you do when you get weary in waiting for God to hear your prayer? What do you do when you get weary of living for God, but it doesn't seem like there's a payoff What do you do when you get weary of God saying, I'm going to make the world right one day, just trust me. And yet it seems like the day never comes. And it seems like generation after generation live and die with those unmet expectations. Their dilemma is our dilemma. And sadly, too many people have made the choice to give up. They've made the choice that this book is a myth and God might not even be real They've given in to the lie that my life has no meaning and no ultimate purpose. They've given in to the lie of the enemy that there is no God. There's no great plan. There's no ultimate right over wrong. And they've walked away from their faith. Many have walked away from their faith in your family and mine and in our churches and in our community because they no longer believe. They've gotten weary of waiting and they can't see How God is at work in their own life or how God is at work on the stage of human history. And yet I thank God there have always been a remnant of people who believe in God, not based on the philosophy, what have you done for me lately? But they believe in God because of the promises of God and that he is a faithful God and that our faith in God is not futile because God is always faithful. Maybe not when we think he should be or how we think he should be, but one day we'll look back and see God kept his promise. We had the hindsight of 2,000 years to see how God kept those early promises to send the Savior the first time. We also have the promises that he's going to come back one day and he's going to make all wrong right. In the meantime, he's giving us time to tell others about him through our lives and through our lips He's given us the chance to be like Zechariah and Elizabeth to live for God no matter what. If he answers my prayers or not, I'm going to live for him. If he comes through for me or not, I'm going to trust his promises. If I can make sense of the world in my own mind or not, I'm going to trust that God is in control. And I'm going to hang on and hold on to my hope and my trust and my faith. I'm going to say some of you dads in this room, you need to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Dad, lead the way. Dad, set the example. Put God first in your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and lead your family by your example and by your dedication. I'm going to say there's some wives in this room and some moms in this room and some young ladies in this room. You need to make a stand that whether my family or friends understand it or not, I'm going to live for God. And even if he doesn't come through for me like I think he ought to, I'm going to trust that he's got a bigger plan than I can ever understand. And I'm just going to trust him and I'm going to say to some teenagers in this room and some children in this room, don't do like so many of your peers are doing and give up on God and stop believing in God. No, you hold on to your hope. Be that remnant. Be that small group in every generation that did not give up on God because God will never give up on you. Be that example in how you live your life. And senior adults, you, we, May be advanced in years. But let us set the example of what a lifetime of faith looks like. Not based on what God has done for me lately. But based on the fact my faith is not futile. Because God is always faithful. And I will go to my grave living for Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment... I believe there are some followers of Jesus that needed to be here today to be encouraged. To wait well. To hold on to hope. And to knowing that they are a part of a bigger story of redemption than they will ever imagine. And whether you ever answer a prayer like we think you should or whether we ever see an angel we have something greater. We have the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who lives with us and in us. And because of what he has accomplished on the cross of Calvary in the empty tomb, we can trust him with every other question, with every other uncertainty, with every other longing, with every other answered prayer of our life. Because we know that he's bigger and he has written us into his story. And we thank you and praise you for that. So, Father, I pray for the encouragement of every Christian in this room. God, there could be somebody, though, who's been on the brink. They've been ready to give up, or maybe they've already given up. May this Christmas be your call to them come home. Come back to God. Come back to faith and trusting him no matter what. And there could be somebody in this room for the first time in their life, they need Jesus. They need to trust him as their Lord and their Savior for the forgiveness of their sin. And I pray that right now, where they sit, they would say to you in their heart, Dear God, thank you for loving me. And even though I don't understand everything, I know this. I'm a sinner. And you sent Jesus to die for sinners to take the punishment for sinners. And I thank you he did that for me on a cross over 2,000 years ago. And he rose from the dead just like he said he would. He kept his promise to come back. And so I place my faith in him. And now that I've trusted him as my Lord and Savior, I hang on to the promise that he said one day he'll come again a second time and make all wrong right. And that I get to be with him in time and for eternity. So, Heavenly Father, I pray for people that will turn and believe in Jesus for the first time today as their Lord and their Savior, that they'll not be ashamed of this decision, but they'll let someone know, today I've committed my life to Christ. Maybe they'll go to our website and on that Let's Connect card, let us know that today they prayed to trust Jesus. God, that'll be such an encouragement to me. I want to know that so that I can rejoice for them. And God, for the rest of us, May this be the day that we renewed our faith, knowing our faith in you is not futile because you are always faithful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.